Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think I am very excited and happy by the difference of the world and by how distinct every particular place is. I think that we kid ourselves uh, while living in small bubbles, uh, that globalization and great levels of communication and a whole variety of things are erasing difference all around the world and are making everything homogenous. Uh, and I think the paradox of the whole talk in some ways was that that difference was highlighted by one thing, that we were taking around a single story written by someone 400 years ago, and that all of the people in all of these different and distinct situations could understand that story and could uh, see a part of themselves and a part of their own society in that one story. And so that was a, you know, a really enjoyable paradox that we took one cultural artifact around that a lot of people looked at it and that they all found something in it. They all found a, a common understanding and a common humanity in it, while at the same time we were discovering just how different and how particular the world is. There is nothing neither good or bad, but thinking makes it so. The iconic words of Shakespeare from Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack the linguistic brilliance, the philosophical trills, a mysterious allure of Hamlet with Dominic Trumgool, the former artistic director of the Globe Theatre, whose new book, Hamlet Globe to Globe, has just been published by Canongate, where Dominic writes... For a play that is supposed to be one of Lichter's most meditative and philosophical, Hamlet has a fairly impressive body count. It's not quite in the Terminator class, but it's not a long way off Titus Andronicus either. Dominic goes on to write that Hamlet has not just shrunk space, it has also contracted time. It is part of the fabric that surrounds and sits within us. It has become in large part us. So who and what is Hamlet, and how does a play speak to the 21st century and all our woes? Hello, my name is Dominic Drumgoul. I was the Artistic Director of the Globe from 2006 through to 2016. Uh, Prior to that, I'd worked extensively in the theatre, largely in the world of new plays and new writing. Uh, First at the Bush, then at the Old Vic, then with the Oxford Stage Company. I've also written extensively in the past, At the Globe, we did a number of things. We were very uh, expansionist and fast-growing as an organization. It's a young organization. So we put on an international festival. We built a new theater. We created a filming platform and a VOD platform for the films we made. And we did extensive touring nationally and internationally. And that climaxed in a two-year tour of Hamlet between the 452nd uh, the 450th, sorry, uh, anniversary of Shakespeare's birthday and the 400th anniversary of his death. That's between April 23rd, 2014 and April 23rd, 2016. And in that time, we toured Hamlet to every single country in the world, or as close as Hamlet, or as close as we could get it. After I left the Globe last April, I one of the things I've done is I've sat down and written a book about that experience of touring Hamlet everywhere and what Hamlet has taught me about the world and what the world has taught me about Hamlet and what's arisen in the uh, conversation between the two. 
What a stunning read, Dominic. Uh, unbelievably expansive, humane, philosophical. It's so many different things. I actually studied um, Hamlet on, on my leaving cert about 25 mm-hmm. years ago at least. And it's such a universal and it's such a powerful story. There's something for everybody in it. I might start with a big wide open question for you just to kick things off. What does yeah. Shakespeare teach us and particularly Hamlet? What does Shakespeare teach us? That's pretty enormous as a question. The automatic response is nothing, in that he doesn't aim to teach. Uh, In fact, he eschews teaching and avoids it as hard as he can. He he doesn't really have a didactic or a moral purpose. His great purpose is to present life and present as wide and as free-ranging a universe as he can, within which there are many moral quandaries, within which there are many philosophical problems, within which there are many ideological battles. I think what we take from Shakespeare is very much up to who we are individually uh, and where we come from. It's very different for me than it is for someone from Peru or someone from Taiwan. Uh, We all take a a vast and distinct thing from him. So personally, I could say that I've learned what it is to be a human being in many ways from him. I've learned about things, grief, jealousy, sanity, love, dealings with uh, ingratitude of others, all sorts of things you learn from Shakespeare before you learn them from life. I also said uh, previously that Shakespeare is like a sort of emotional gymnasium in that, you know, you may not know anything about love when you're young, but you read Romeo and Juliet or you hear the line, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? And something about the big, broad expanse within that line teaches you something about love. You may not know what jealousy is, you may not know it in your life, but you read Othello and you observe Othello and what happens to Othello and you discover things about jealousy before you meet it in real life. So in some funny way, for me growing up, Shakespeare was a way of rehearsing emotions and rehearsing feelings and rehearsing stuff that I would be going through before I got to it in, in reality. And I think he's still doing that. Halfway through the book, you say something on the lines of that the play Hamlet started to make you see the world through its own perspective. I thought that was fascinating. Can you talk me through that? I think that the one of the many striking things about it was that uh, I think when I before I did the tour, I thought that Hamlet was about discovering calm and Hamlet was about discovering peace and about a young man who was troubled finding his way to a sort of harmony and a sort of oneness with um, where he was in the world. And I think that less and less. And I think that the tour taught me that Hamlet is about change and it's about restlessness and it's about wanting to make things different and it's about wanting to create a new modern and wanting to create a different future. I think that wherever we went, that's what people identified with it. People who knew the play well, people who didn't know the play well at all. The first thing they saw was a figure of authority, Claudius, and then at the same time a figure of resistance, Hamlet. And they saw Hamlet bucking against everything that the figure of authority said and did and represented. And they didn't know what he was looking for. I don't think we all do know what Hamlet is looking for exactly, but we know that he wants change and he wants things to move and to shift and i think that you started to see in the play's restlessness a reflection in some way of the world's restlessness and vice versa it offers no easy answers either there's no quick solution sure there's not no it doesn't offer up any sort of little pat morals it um it challenges and it challenges and it challenges at the end hamlet says um stuff that you could interpret as being sort of Zen Buddhist calm. If it be now, it's not to come. 
there's a, a special provenance in the fall of a sparrow. You could say that that's him finding a sort of glorious acceptance. But then around him saying that, you see his wild flare of temper when he jumps into the grave of Ophelia and screams insanely at Laertes. You see him getting drawn into a trap based on his own vanity by a sort of gadfly, Osric. You see him lose his temper in the course of the fight with Laertes. So uh, I think the um, the old notion that it's a sort of Christian parable about somebody refining their own soul and uh, a state of sweetness and repose, I think is something that um, isn't the whole of the story. You're right. Everyone's definition of a good actor is different and that a good actor is hard to define. So within all of that, how difficult was it casting Hamlet and the different characters? We had a number of considerations when we were casting because we wanted to cast good actors. We wanted to cast good storytellers. We needed to cast people that were going to be adaptable and versatile that could play in a stadium in Khartoum in front of 4,000 Sudanese uh, in a sort of rock arena that could play in a small studio theatre in Taiwan that could play in a beautiful Spanish classical opera theatre in Lima in Peru that could uh, easily move between one and the other auditorium. So they had to be um, flexible and loose and capable of reacting to different situations as, as actors and as artists. But also we were very concerned about them as people, because it was going to be a huge and challenging human experience. And we needed people who would look after each other and be loyal to each other, who'd be fun, who'd uh, be careful with themselves and of each other, and who were tough and tough enough to get from the beginning to the end. So I described it as uh, trying to find astronauts, trying to find you know people for the space program almost, which is a sort of exaggeration. But we did want exceptional people and then we were lucky that we we found exceptional people yeah you write somewhere that a good actor above all must be kind and that's not something that would anyone would immediately think of but then when you pair it all back or strip it all back you're looking at teamwork you're looking at friendship you're looking at trust and loyalty and a lot of high-flung emotions on stage aren't you you are yes you need absolute loyalty i always think that um no one really quite understands the degree of ingrained discipline in an actor. You know, it's not an explicit discipline. It doesn't involve people blowing whistles or shouting or banging a drum. Uh, it's something that's got to be inside them because, you know, the convention that everybody is there at a certain moment, be it 7.30, and everybody is ready for the next two and a half hours to all stay in a certain pattern, not rigidly, but sufficiently that the others can do what they do, requires an extraordinary amount of ingrained discipline, much greater than in any soldier, much greater than in any other profession that I can imagine. So that's a sort of given. And then above and beyond that, which within that, there's contained an enormous amount of questions about trust uh, and about loyalty and about looking after other people. Part of the discipline is an act of kindness in that you, you, you follow the discipline, you follow the etiquettes of the stage as a way of looking after your fellow artists. But also, you want people around that arena of the stage to be kind to each other, because what people do is, you know, you risk your own dignity, you are exposing your own sensibility, you're exposing your own emotion, you're putting yourself on display, and you don't want that risk to be surrounded with cruelty or with viciousness or with small-mindedness. So uh, you do want the actors to be intensely disciplined, generous, loyal on stage and 
kind, generous and loyal offstage. Now, that might all sound a bit sort of lovey-ish and a bit darling-ish, but uh, it's a sort of given that uh, that's the world in which we have to work if we're going to be able to do what we do. Hamlet offers so many iconic lines in cultural or theatre history and there's so many ways that you can read to be or not to be or what a piece of work is man and all those famous reference points. But you argue that it's one of the most um, misconceived or misunderstood plays in performance history and I was really surprised by that. I think that it's taken a, a collection of skews over the centuries. It's sort of zigged and it's zagged according to whatever the prevailing intellectual fashion of the day is. I mean, it's the nature of an icon like that is that it, it attracts uh, strong interpretation and uh, every age wants to sort of claim it for its own. Um, if I had to sort of categorise what's happened to it recently, I'd say that it's been sort of fetlocked by neurosis and um, imprisoned by angst and by post-Freudian interpretation and by concentrating on the um, hysteria of the the central character himself, or, or characterising it as hysteria, which I don't think it is. Uh, and I watched a very, very good, lovely bit of old-fashioned television a while ago. It was Peter O'Toole and Orson Welles and an old English actor, I can't remember his name, I think it was Ernest Jones. And it's 1960s TV and they're drinking whiskey and they're smoking cigarettes and they're giggling and they're ridiculing each other and it's very very entertaining and it's very funny and O'Toole is very badly behaved and starts talking about Gertrude as a lesbian with absolutely no historical justification and not much textual justification and that gives Orson Welles the giggle so it's fun but then in the middle of it Orson Welles as he you know almost always did affords one sort of stunning insight and one incredible illumination, which is to say that Hamlet isn't a neurotic or a tortured soul or just those things. He is partly those things, but what he is principally is he's a genius, and he's a Mozartian prodigal genius of language. He gives language away with a generosity and an exuberance and an abundance that no one else has ever matched. And, you know, Othello is a black man in a white man's world. The Scottish general is a soldier bordering on levels of pathology. King Lear is a sort of tyrant locked in his own fear of his own dementia. You know, those are their key notes from which the play emerges. And Hamlet's keynote, in a way, is that he is a, he's a genius. He's a generous soul. He, he spills language out and insight out in an incredible way. And we know from his relationships with Rosencrantz Guildenstern, with Horatio, with Laertes, all the evidence we have of what he was before the house fell in on him and his father died is that he was a great friend and a great joy and a great delight to be with. So that was one of the large sort of interpretive shifts that I wanted to make is to bring him back a little bit of the sort of extraordinary, prodigious Renaissance prince. I'm just wondering, Dominic, you spent so much time with Hamlet and with Shakespeare. What really is Hamlet all about? Because in one way, we could say it's a play about love. In another way, you could argue it's a play about madness. And in another way, it's about grief. So I'm sure to every reader or to anyone who goes to a performance of Hamlet, depending on, you know, an uh, director's production values and so on, that it can be understood in so many different ways or it can give comfort in so many different ways. I think that's exactly right. I think that it's about all those things that you mentioned, about love and about grief and about madness. And really, you can go to it depending on where you are in your life at that given moment. It might be that you are 
a young person troubled by the moral authority of your elders. It could be that you're somebody who's in love or fallen out of love and falling out of love has sort of slightly endangered your identity or your sanity. Uh, it could be that you are morally troubled and you're trying to sort of reconfigure your understanding of the world. Or it could be that you're in pain about the loss of a parent, which is something that we all feel acutely. Uh, and whichever one of those it is, or many others, you can take to the play and you can find something rich and rewarding coming back from it. I think that's the another of the essences about why this play is so great and Shakespeare is so great is that it's multifaceted and it depends on where you're coming from when you arrive at the play, that, uh, what you take away from it. You write the Turing Hamlet kept you honest in some way. It kind of took you down a peg or two on none of, the, I suppose, the self-importance of big institutional settings. Can you talk to me how about some of the big kind of lessons within all of that? I know Mexico was a very tough experience for the whole crew because he had food poisoning. In other places, it was just the actual logistics of, of where you were going to stage the show. So can you talk me through some of that? Well, it's uh, something that we developed over the course of time with our touring programme. We created a small-scale touring programme that we took around. And it was very important for us as a way of sort of consciously giving away our our dignity, uh, not just risking it, but sort of freely spending it and throwing it away almost, in that, um, you know, big institutions, uh, cultural institutions, can very quickly become grand. And everyone within them can become grand and can become... Uh, divorced from their audience and also divorced from the process of, of making. But the great thing about the Globe is that on the one hand, you know, we had this uh, immense edifice on the South Bank in London uh, and we were playing to extraordinary audiences and, uh, you know, enjoying a burgeoning reputation in um, the sort of eyes of the world. But on the other hand, you know, everyone was going around with these small-scale tours and if you were there, you had to put the seats out for the audience or do a bit of front of house or help putting the setup or at the end of the show get a power drill out and uh, take all of the bolts out of the, uh, the structure that made the set and help pack things away. Uh, so everybody had to be hands-on and everyone had to get the dirt under their fingernails. And that keeps people from being too self-important and to divorce from the process of making, which was very, very important to me uh, in terms of who we are as an organization in the eyes of the world, but also how the people that work there understood who they were. Because um, it's very, very easy for any institution to get airs and graces and to start becoming other. Uh, and I was very keen that the Globe didn't. And so this, uh, this tour in particular and the process of touring were very good ways of avoiding that. I'd say Debuty was interesting, was it? Oh, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating place. I mean, it's tiny. Well, it's a um, small little scrap of earth uh, locked between places that have been trapped in uh, difficult political and social situations for the last hundred-odd years um, between Eritrea and Ethiopia and Somalia. And it's got an incredible pile-up of international interest. Uh, the only American naval base um, on, Afri on African soil is uh, the French who were the sort of colonial masters still have a big military interest there. The Chinese are showing a great deal of fascination. All of the countries of the world park their sort of special forces there so that they can jump on big ships and escort them up and down um, the Red Sea to, to avoid pirates. So you get this incredible 
blend of um, geopolitical shifting movement uh, and a small little scrap of earth. And so it was quite a brutal introduction to the, um, the real politique of the world. I said a fight to the moonshade You're just shadows in the cascade of history Faded love and then your gaze The sky release I said our bodies on my long This heavy whisper makes me more scared than anything I was loved and now they love's lost no, they'll never find us way out of some madness. I feel free in time. Four depths with me, miles apart in light. We saw the whole world in time. You breach the brighter part. Long draw my twisted body in a bind that you want to break. This house is covered by your blood spot. Don't give a fuck what's taken. I hear there's wars worth making. I just leave in time. Four depths with me, miles apart in life. We saw the whole. with me much apart in love. 